Hello, on behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me today is Chris Watling of Longview Economics. Our subject for this podcast is When Does Tina, There Is No Alternative, End? The Independent Research Forum promotes a broad range of high-quality independent research providers from around the world, both micro and macro. Some are sector-specific, some are country-specific, many are global, and all are investment-related. Now, many global investors have come to the conclusion that the equity markets are the best place to invest at present. This has been an important factor driving the rise in stock markets to higher and higher valuations in recent times. Will this continue? When will it end? What happens when it does end? To discuss these questions and other important issues, I'm very pleased to say that today we're joined by Chris Watling, the founder, CEO and chief market strategist at Longview Economics. Before founding Longview Economics in 2003, Chris Watling was a European economist and strategist at Casnove, where he developed his proprietary risk appetite gauge models, which are also known as RAG models. When combined with the sell-off indicators, these RAG models have proved to be very successful in calling equity market direction and timing waves of risk aversion in global markets. Longview Economics is an independent global macro and strategy advisor boutique that is located in London. Their pioneering research approach brings macro and markets together, drawing on deep macro analysis of the most important global themes, cycles and events in order to make actionable, often contrarian investment and trading recommendations. Chris, welcome. Let's start with a brief introduction to Longview Economics and the advisory service that you provide to institutional investors and private clients. Yeah, thank you, David. So uh, in terms of what we provide, our interest is really global asset allocation and all things that feed into that. And we also think about short-term market trading of a whole variety of macro assets as well. But what do we do? We really we add up the macro. We think about the global economic cycle. We think about where the best place to invest money is across the globe. We have a lot of um, greed and fear models and all sorts of other types of models and and ways of thinking about the global economy in terms of the credit cycle and the way the banking system works and and monetary metrics and so on. And and we add all that up and come with some conclusions on various timeframes, actually. We like to think on, simplistically put, two-week, two-month, two-year and 20-year timeframes. So we have different products to cover all of those. Very interested in in financial history and really just trying to help clients... um, improve their performance, essentially, and understand what's going on in the world. So, so Chris, what is TINA? There is no alternative. Yeah, so TINA, Tina is essentially the situation that the central banks have, have pushed investors into. They've been big big buyers of, of financial assets, particularly sovereign bonds, as we know. And, and as a result, the yields are, are lower, in part reflecting that, and therefore they're pushing investors up the up the risk curve there's no alternative in other words to to buying equities and to buying higher risk asset prices or another way of thinking about that that whole concept is if you look at yields today 
and you want to you want an income fund, it's very difficult to get it in safe haven assets, uh, classic safe havens, whether they're high grade corporate bonds like you know Nestle corporate bonds. Everyone likes to talk about with a with a negative yield. Uh, that corporate bond already yielding negative has been for a while, or, or sovereign bonds which are yielding negative or pretty close to zero. So in other words, you can't get the income you want in safe havens. So you've got to be riskier in your portfolio just to to achieve an income. Or alternatively, in a balanced portfolio, you need to take on more risk to achieve the return that you want, given what's happened to sovereign bond yields as a result of, of what central banks have been doing and, and what they've been buying in financial markets. So what distortions has uh, Tina caused that maybe are of concern? Well, I think there are enormous distortions in the financial markets uh, and, and in the economy. Simplistically, from the economic perspective, we all remember doing economics at university and economics 101 was basically the, the banking system the financial system is an intermediary and it and it intermediates between uh, lenders and borrowers and if you're a lender you expect to get some return uh, for for putting your money into the system and into the bank and depositing it at the bank and and therefore the borrower pays for that privilege of borrowing the money but of course as we know the world is so distorted with zerp and nerp and qe and so on, that um, that a lot of financial intermediaries are, are almost topsy-turvy. I like to think of it as, I always like to quote the White Queen and Alice in Wonderland, who, who mentioned that she could believe six impossible things before breakfast. And that's kind of how it's become over the last decade, as we've had this post-GFC financial intermediary situation and this extraordinary monetary policy. And we've got to the situation now where it is topsy-turvy economics. In other words, you if you take out mortgages in countries like Denmark and Portugal, there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of people, mortgage holders, who are paid every month to hold a mortgage. The bank pays them interest, credits their account an interest amount every month because they hold a mortgage and because the mortgage rates are basically negative. So we do have this very topsy-turvy financial system. That's one of the implications of TINA. One of the other distortions of TINA is, is what you see in financial prices, that there's a whole weight of money that's distorted valuations in, in asset markets. And, and if you think about uh, a stock market, it's really a combination of its earnings growth, its E, plus what its PE ratio does. And I think economists and market strategists for years have struggled to, to get to grips with what really drives the PE ratio. There's been various theories over the decades, including it's to do with the inverse of where inflation is and, and things like that. But I think the best theory is really weight of money and, in fact, liquidity. And you can see in the last decade post-GFC, there's been a very good correlation between the global stock market and the S&P 500's forward PE ratio and the amount of QE that's been done. So when QE is announced, the PE ratio rallies, and when it stops, it falls off and uh, and falls significantly. And there's a very nice correlation to work pretty well. Indeed, in taking that even further in 2018, when the Fed was doing QT, it was contracting its balance sheet. You had a very strong strong hit, of course, uh, towards the end of that year to the PE ratio as well. So, so, so the distortions from liquidity have pushed up valuations to very high levels. You can see that on various valuation metrics, particularly standalone type PE ratios, rather than comparing equities to bonds, just looking at equities on a standalone basis. So the Schiller PE ratio, people talk about running it about 36, 37 times, only ever been higher 
briefly in 99-2000. And in fact, that's the only time it's been higher in the last 140 years. Or, or indeed, you look at the forward PE ratio on the S&P 500 trading about 21-22 times versus its, uh, its sort of 50-60 year peak of 24-25 times in 99-2000 and an average of 15 or so and a low of six or seven. So right at the top end of that range. And it's not just the US where where valuations are expensive. You see that across a range of, of global equity markets, we, we track about 40 global equity markets and, and measure where their PE, PE ratios are relative to their own individual history and find that about half of them were in their top quartile PE ratio and many of them in their top decile. So, so it's not just the US, it's globally expensive asset prices. You get it in equities, you get it in, in fixed income, and you get in other parts of financial markets as well, sovereign bonds, of course, and so on. So the distortions are economic and they're in the financial markets. Since the global financial crisis, we've had nearly about 10 years of unconventional monetary policies. Um, are equity investors pretty much all in? Well, there's another another way of thinking about it. And, and the short answer is pretty much if you look at the flow of funds data in the States for households and you look at their share of their financial assets that are in equities, you'll see that it's about 36, 37 percent, just depending on how you measure it. And it's it's really pretty hard that that ratio has moved up pretty meaningfully in recent quarters since the pandemic lows in March 2020. And it's now really the, high, it's the highest it's been on, on record, which is all the way pretty much back to World War Two. Prior peaks occurred in, in 2000, at the peak of the TMT bubble, about 32%. And then the, the peak before that was 1968 at around the um, a sort of 30% percent mark. So, so with the highest ever in 50 or 60 years, we've, we've moved up sharply. It looks um, troubling. It suggests households are pretty much all in. Other ways of showing that are, are you can look at subsections and subsegments of the flow of funds and get similar sort of information out of that. So, yeah, I think households have been bullied up the risk curve. They're very committed to equities. And interestingly, after those peaks in 2019-68, you basically had a secular bear market in U.S. equities for the following 10 years, whereby U.S. equities went nowhere in aggregate with lots of uh, volatility and some big down uh, down moves in the course of that 10 years. So, so we're record highs on household ownership of equities in the States. Uh, they are pretty much all in. You can also see that in some of the um, the speculative trading as well. So, yeah, I think I think that's a, a really important point, a really important part of what Tina has done and, and what this central bank policy has done in terms of bullying people up the risk curve and, and encouraging them to go all in on equities. And who else has been buying equities? Yeah, and of course, it's not just households. It's, it's across a range of, of uh, agents in the economy, if you like central banks across the globe. Many of them have been buying equities. And I would say buying them with newly created money. This is the important point. Take the Swiss central bank. They print a lot of Swiss francs in, in recent years. They've sold them into the market and bought dollars to try and keep it, their Swiss franc uh, currency from moving too high. So increasing the supply of Swiss francs to suppress the the exchange rate. And of course, they end up getting dollars on the other side of that trade and wondering what to do with them. And part of what they've been doing them is parking them into a, a Swiss national uh, sovereign wealth fund and buying US equities. So at one stage a few years ago, the Swiss uh, wealth fund was, was one of the biggest owners of some of the biggest tech stocks in the States. And of course, they bought that all with newly created money. So there you go. It's another example of um, central banks uh, creating money and 
and, and pushing up valuations and adding liquidity to global markets and, and pushing up um, um, those risk assets. Um, and of course, not just the Swiss National Bank, the Japanese, and then of course, the European Central Bank and other central banks have been buying corporate bonds. And on top of that, companies, cheap money, negative interest rates, zero interest rates have encouraged companies to borrow money cheaply and do some financial engineering, borrow money, build up debt and buy back stock. So they're benefiting from this cheap money, this TINA policy, this NERP and ZERP as well. And um, so that that's another key part of the global economy where we've seen buyers of equities as a result, really directly of the of the TINA like um, central bank policies that, that we've been discussing. So when do you expect TINA to end and what happens when it does? What's well, a great question. When do we expect Tina to end? And I think, well, if you think about why do we have Tina, we have Tina because of the way central banks are behaving. So the question is, what will change their behavior and push them to uh, move beyond those policies, move beyond QE, uh, start to raise interest rates? And, and in fact, we're starting to see that already now. In the last couple of weeks, we've had surprise surprises from a couple of central banks suddenly stopping um, QE policies. The Bank of Canada last week did that and surprised markets with its suddenness. And clearly, uh, a number of central banks around the world are starting to think about this, starting to raise interest rates. A lot of the second line central banks are already doing that. So I think if you get a persistent and um, persistence of inflation, it will change the behavior of central banks. And it's the behavior of central banks and the policies of central banks that have driven these record high valuations and changed the behavior of the other agents in the economy, as I mentioned, like the companies, uh, the um, the households and so on, and bullied them up the risk curve. So, so I think inflation, and it looks to us like some inflation's coming. At the moment, it, there, there's definitely an argument that parts of it are transitory. But there's um, clearly a, an argument for a lot of pent up demand in the system. And as um, a pandemic turns to an endemic, which increasingly it looks like it is across the globe, then I would expect some of this pent up demand to be released. So if we look at household balance sheets in the US, there's about a three and a half trillion dollars extra cash sitting there waiting to be spent, if you like, waiting for normalization of the economy. Equally, if you look um, in, in the UK, you've got about 10% of GDP of extra cash in household balance sheets. And you can make similar comments about the Eurozone, um, sort of 6 7 8%. So there's a lot of cash sitting there waiting to be applied. And it's not just that. If you look in the West, the households have repaired their balance sheets over the last decade. So debt levels are down meaningfully. Consumer credit relative to GDP is down meaningfully. Mortgage equity withdrawal hasn't been a thing post-GFC until the last 12 months. And all these factors, I think, can come back. So there's pent-up demand. There's an argument the Roaring Twenties are going to return. And um, and that'll see some pretty strong growth and uh, and, a, and a central bank uh, that uh, has to respond to the inflation that it sees out there and change its behavior. So, And then the question is, well, you know, what does that mean for financial markets? Well, financial markets... I would argue that Jeremy Grantham's right. Um, you know, there is a, ma- a major bubble in, in financial markets across the globe. There's been too much liquidity, too much cheap money, and we've had all sorts of extraordinary behavior in financial markets. A lot of people have been talking about whether it's SPACs or meme stocks or, or cryptos and, um, you know, very expensive equity markets as well. So, you know, Charles Kindleberger, the great financial historian, was 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 pretty clear about what creates bubbles and what ends them. And in his view, in his study of financial history and, and bubbles through the ages, four things created a bubble and one thing ended it. And the, the four things that create that bubble are really cheap money, 
uh, you get a large buildup of debt associated with that uh, asset class. Um, you, you get a, an expensive valuation, and then you end up with a, a really good story explaining away why it's different this time. Of course, it's never different. Uh, it's always the same in, in one sense. And the one thing that ends bubbles is the removal of cheap money. So uh, I think when, when, when central bankers change their behavior, Tina comes to an end, the bubble will burst, and you'll get some pretty major down drafts in equity and asset prices across the globe as they struggle with that, with a lack of liquidity and the reduced liquidity. So it's, it's troubling times upon us. I don't think we're quite there yet. It looks like there's a good 12 months to go. But I think um, what ends Tina is that inflation changing, inflation outlook and changing behavior by central banks. And when it ends, it's quite impactful, I think, on asset prices, which are very richly valued and therefore have a lot of uh, vulnerability to the downside. So Given what you say about uh, Tina and the continuing boom in the short term, what are your strategic and tactical asset allocation views? Yeah, so interestingly, despite our concerns about the medium term, which may be 12, 18, 24, 36 months, um, it depends on how things pan out. But despite our concerns about that, we are overweight risk on a tactical basis. That's more of a one to four month view. We have been for most of this year. It's been, been a good year in that respect. And we remain so into the into the Christmas period and, and potentially into the start of the new year. So tactically on side for risk and strategically as well. So our strategic portfolio is our, our global asset allocation portfolio. Uh, it's a recommendation across all key global assets and key, uh, key geographies of the world. And we're overweight risk, primarily overweight developed market risk, uh, particularly in the more cyclical parts of the developed markets, whether that's Japan or Parts of parts of the eurozone, or or indeed the UK, which is a, a little bit more value slash cyclical, and um, and underweight the sovereign bond yields because it seems to us if we're right about this release of pent up demand and strong growth as you normalise the economies post pandemic, then you get bond yields backing up and money coming out of bonds and moving into equities over the next six twelve months. So positive risk on a tactical and a strategic basis. Uh, but of course, mindful of all the risks and the minefield out there that is Tina and the day when eventually Tina will, will become a bit of an issue 12, 18, 24 months out from here. Chris, many thanks for this very interesting and informative insight into the advisory service that is provided by Longview Economics. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in greater detail more of your tactical ideas and trading recommendations. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Longview Economic Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Chris Watling of Longview Economics. Thank you.